Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. And it's from 2 Samuel chapter 9. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodibar. So King David had, bought, had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belongs to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands this servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Uh, I hope I was pronouncing that correctly, Adnan. <laughs> um, and let's give him a big round of applause. Thank you, Rich. Um, well done on not stuttering while saying his name. I feel like I might have been pronouncing it wrong all this time. I, Mephibosheth, right? Not Mephibosheth. It's probably easier to say Mephibosheth. Um, but thank you, thank you so much for that warm welcome. I hope you're as cheerful at the end of this but, as you are at the start. Um, but it's such a pleasure to be here in my home service to be preaching. Um, it's such an honor uh, to be here. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Adnan. Um, I live in East London. This is my home service. I've been a part of Christchurch for maybe around seven years now. Uh, so I've been going on for a while here. I usually sit at the back where um, you can see Andy. I usually manage the sound desk. Um, so I get to see the back of your heads, uh, which is a little bit less scary than standing here seeing the uh, front of your faces. I'm not trying to say your faces are scary, but well, maybe some of you, I don't know. Um, but anyway, we are continuing our series on the life of David. And we are now in the kind of middle of his lifetime, around about when he's 30 years old. And he's just been coronated king. And this is an interesting interaction between him and uh, Mephibosheth um, during that time. Uh, but before I get into it, I think it's good to give a bit of background as to where we are at the moment. So 2 Samuel picks up essentially right after Saul's death in 1 Samuel. 
Uh, and we see that David composes this really long poem in the first chapter, and he su surprises a lot of people. Um, he composes this long poem as he's mourning and grieving the very death of the man who was trying to murder him for years, and the very man who is who, whom he was trying to run away from. So we, we see in this passage that David's um, character is shining in terms of his humility and compassion. He's grieving the death even of his own enemy. By chapter 3, we see that there's this long war that continues between the house of Saul and the house of David. By chapter 5, David is anointed king. He unifies all the tribes of Israel, and he's coronated around about when he's 30 years old. This is a guy who went from a shepherd boy to a soldier, from a soldier to a general, and then from a general to a fugitive, and from a fugitive to a king. I mean, we talk about career progression, but this guy has seen it all. He now experiences a season of success and of God's blessing. The Israelites asked him to unify the tribes, which he does. He then goes on to conquer Jerusalem and establishes it as the capital city, as the political capital of Israel. From there, he goes on to win many more battles and expands Israel's territories. And after making Jerusalem the political capital of Israel, he wants to make it the religious capital too. So in chapter 6, we see that the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the capital city. And uh, I believe Richard Butt preached an excellent sermon on this two weeks ago, which is uh, worth a listen by podcast if you get a chance. And we see by chapter 7, David kind of comes to a standstill. He kind of wanders to himself and ponders, well, Israel has this permanent home now, and I have this massive house, this palace. Surely the God of Israel deserves his own house too. So we see David come before God and essentially ask God, um, can I build you a house, a temple? Surely you need somewhere that you need to dwell. And God essentially replies and says, that's a really nice thought of you, David. But actually, I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty, a kingdom. So God makes this covenant with David, promising that there will be a future king in David's life, in David's line, sorry, who will set up this eternal kingdom. And much of this gets picked up in David's own writings, in his own poems and songs that you read throughout the Psalms, and in much of the writings of the prophets throughout the Bible. So chapter 7 is soaked in this covenant ethos, and by chapter 8, David continues to press on and have political and military victory, which then brings us into chapter 9. So, so far, we've seen this kind of top-down assessment of God's blessing, an overview of his plans. But now we're somewhat transported down into the ground level, the dialogue level, into Jerusalem, into David's very palace, into his very life. And I think this is significant for a reason. We see that on the one hand, God has this overarching plan for David and indeed for the whole world. And it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. But then we get brought down into the nitty gritty of David's private and personal life. You see, we know about David more than any other character in the Bible, both what he said and what he did in private and in public. We know about the good stuff that he did, but also a lot of the naughty stuff, which will get picked up hopefully next week. We've now entered into this homely incident, into the court of David, and it's only two chapters later that we begin to see David's flaws as a king, 
and where he fails and how what he does in private affects what he does in public. But again, that's another topic for another time. Today, we are looking at David and his act of kindness, the kind king, the king um, who not only wants to show kindness and keep his promises, but also wants to be an example of the kindness that he himself has been receiving. He's now well-established as a reigning monarch, and now he's sitting in his palace with all his officials around him, and the first thing he does is recalls his covenant with Jonathan, Saul's son, whom you may remember was killed back in 1 Samuel. But before his death, Jonathan said this to David while his father was trying to murder him. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. So we begin to see how key this covenant was, both in the mind and in the heart of David. It was crucial to him. He says to his officials, is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for the sake of Jonathan? Let's zoom in to this word kindness for a second because it's mentioned three times in this chapter alone, verses one, three, and seven. And in fact, Jonathan uses the exact same word when he makes his covenant with David. The Hebrew word here is hesed, the same word used when speaking about God's faithfulness towards his people. It ties in to mean steadfast love or covenant love or loyal love. The point is, it's a very big word, meaning it incorporates a very large meaning. And we can't do it, entire, we can't do it much justice in English, so we kind of narrowly translate it as kindness. We see this word used in places like Exodus 34, where God reveals himself to Israel as a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, hesed, keeping steadfast love, hesed, for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Hesed most commonly refers to God's love and loyalty with Israel throughout the Old Testament. David uses this same word and almost repeats himself. And instead of just saying, I want to show kindness for the sake of Jonathan, he says, I want to show God's kindness. It shows that he's not only thinking of his love and loyalty to Jonathan, but he's consciously, consciously wanting to exemplify the kindness that God has for him, even in his first dealings as king. This shows something profound about the nature of what we know as covenant. On one hand, we take it to mean some kind of agreement between two or more people, some kind of promise that is made to each other, and it's, this promise is then sealed by some sort of sign or sacrifice or monument built in its honor. It carries with it legal obligation to be kept. But in the case of Jonathan and David, it was marked by something else. David made a vow based on Jonathan's love, as it said in 1 Samuel, for he loved him as he loved himself. Some translations put it as his very own soul. It shows just how deeply close they were 
and just how much loyalty and devotion they had to one another. Because of the love he received, David promised to show Hesed kindness to Jonathan and to his house, despite the fact that King Saul committed a grave sin against David. The same word Hesed is used by God in his covenant with David. He promises to show David kindness and his children kindness, his entire house kindness, despite the sin that David would come to commit and indeed his children would come to commit. This is what shaped David's understanding of covenant. Rather than simply a legal promise or something he's kind of got himself tangled into and now he can't get out, he sees it as the very foundation or the framework for not only receiving kindness but also showing it to others. It is marked by love and loyalty, genuine care and genuine affection. It's not something he just simply gives his mental assent to. It's something that he gives his very heart to. He knows that God himself is involved and is pouring out his kindness and love into him, so much so that David is even shocked at this. In chapter 7, we see him saying to God, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me so far? And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes. Covenant is something that has a tangible effect on his behavior and his response to God and to other people, even in the day-to-day dealings of his new job. We also see the effect this has on Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son. Now, there's a lot, there's a lot that can be said on this one interaction between David and Mephibosheth, and we won't have enough to do it, um, to do it justice But there are two things I think we can observe here, and they're these, kingly kindness and loving loyalty. And you'll have no idea how long it took me to think of those alliterations. (laughs) But you see, it was common for Middle Eastern kings to essentially wipe out the the entire dynasty of the previous monarchy. It was common for them to kill off family members to avoid any threat of insurrection or challenge to the throne. So it's significant that David's behavior was the complete opposite to what was common back then. And I'm sure it would have raised eyebrows amongst his officials and those loyal to him. But you see, chapter 9 seeks to address a key question, and it's this. How will David, now Israel's king, deal with the surviving members of Saul's household? Or another way to put it is this. What will David choose as the means to navigate his life as king? Will it be power or will it be love? Will he manipulate and manage so that he can remain in control? Or will he be open and generous so that he can be loving and kind? He answers that by looking for a way to keep his promise to Jonathan. And he also answers that by bringing Mephibosheth before him and trying to decide between either execute him as a threat to his power or to love him by keeping his promise. When David asks if there's anyone left from Saul's family to show kindness to, in effect, he's asking this, is there anyone left in the enemy camp whom I can love? He's looking for an enemy to love. You see, neither David or Jonathan really knew which one of them would end up being the king of Israel. What they promised each other 
was that whatever happened, love, not power, would characterize their relationship. Love, not vengeance, would determine their actions. Love, not convenience, would be their motive. Notice how David first addresses Mephibosheth by name. He's recognized as a person, and this is significant, as his name in Hebrew meant seething dishonor. Mephibosheth's story is one of suffering and brokenness. At just five years old, he was crippled in his legs, being dropped by his nurse while they were fleeing to escape David's army. He was a victim of war. While he was born in a kingly palace with much to inherit, and even one day the throne, he lost everything, including his family and his very ability to walk. He grew up in a desolate place called Lodabar, which literally means the land of nothing or nothing land. And he was left dependent on others for their generosity and care. He would have grown up excluded from many things, hidden from public for fear of being identified or even killed as one of Saul's household members. Not only that, but his disability would have brought him further challenges in life, socially with friends being able to support his family, or to even find a new job. In the shame and honor culture that he was in, being physically, socially, and financially dependent on others was viewed somewhat as a dishonorable and shameful thing. And it would have certainly impacted him in more ways than one. But if there was any shame associated with his name throughout the years, it was now being wiped clean as David addresses him in love. From now on, Mephibosheth will be defined by covenant, not his descent or the meaning of his name. Instead, he gets his identity from love. Eugene Peterson, the author and translator of the message translation of the Bible, read by millions around the world, comments on this passage and suggests that David understands a key thing here. He realizes that he can't show God's love by categories. He can't simply make up a new decree or legislation in order to show that. He can only do it by loving a named person who has a past, a present, and a future. Mephibosheth had every reason to be afraid. There was no certainty that David would spare his life. We can see that in his approach as he comes before the king and he falls prostrate in fear. He was the last vestige of Saul's family, and as he, lies there, as he lays there face down on the ground, David prepares him for love with two soothing gospel words in verse 7. Fear not. Fear not, he says. These words are frequently repeated throughout the Bible by God himself. It's there for a reason. There is much to fear in life. Constantly we are met with people or situations that have more power than us. How will they use that power, that authority? Will they exploit us, mistreat us, get rid of us? We learn to be cautious and we come and put these defenses up. We then come before God, a God of all power and mystery, and we bring these very same defenses and insecurities before him. How will he treat us? Will he punish me, take away my freedom? Maybe he won't listen to my prayer. Maybe, just maybe, he has distanced himself from me. Based on what we experience in our day-to-day -day lives, these assumptions can seem true, but here God, through David, is reassuring us with this. 
Fear not. David brings Mephibosheth into his very household, into his very family, seated at his very table to eat the very same food. This is the way love looks, not just feels. It's generous, it's extravagant, it's, it's uncalculated. David gave his heart to Mephibosheth. He shared his palace. He set him up in business and made him one of his own. This kind of outrageous generosity could only come from David's own experience of the generosity that God himself has shown him. David realizes a key thing. He realizes that love demands more loyalty than power or fear. Showing love to someone brings the right kind of loyalty, one that demands the heart and not just the head, one that brings joy and not fear. In fact, we see that this act on the part of David resulted in deep loyalty later on from, uh, later on from Mephibosheth. Towards the end of 2 Samuel, as David is once again a fugitive running away from his own son, Absalom, Mephibosheth remains loyal to David as king. Despite the great opportunity to see David overthrown and the chance of gaining some power for himself in a divided kingdom, Mephibosheth was instead willing to surrender everything he was given just to maintain his loyalty to David. Covenant love results in covenant loyalty and they reciprocate one another. By this, we get a glimpse of the love and loyalty of God. He's not a king that stands aloof and says, er, sinners, I'm not going near them, and er, they're not coming near me. Instead, he beckons us, come with all our impairments and all our insecurities, all our brokenness and sin. He beckons us, come. He wants to surprise us with kindness, just as he surprised David, and in turn, David surprises Mephibosheth. Come, come to him. Too often when we mess up and we feel unworthy to approach God, we wait to earn some sort of brownie points or good enoughness to come back to him. I know I do anyway. But all the while, God is beckoning me, come. Come, I want to show you my kindness, addressing us by name. I mean, it's one thing to note Mephibosheth's response here. He says to David, what is your servant? that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. I mean, we talk about low self-esteem, but for a Jew to speak of someone being a a dog was an all-time low. But to speak of a dead dog, I mean, that was the lowest of the low. But his response isn't actually what's shocking. What's even more shocking is the fact that he came. He came before the king. He came in faith, even with his uncertainty, even with his fears, even in his helpless state, in his broken state. He came before a human king who could at any time have changed his mind and had him executed. But what about God's beckoning to us? The one who stands perfectly in love and kindness. How much more confidence can we have to enter the presence of the king of kings Not as an enemy, but as a friend, a son, a daughter. In Hebrews 4.16, we're called to approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
God promises us mercy and grace. He promises us his hesed, kindness. I think a key thing to remember here is that much of David's life is shared as a demonstration of how God shows his kindness and love and keeps his promises. We see that God is the initiator of covenants. He is the one who remains faithful even when we mess up, even when we sin and ignore the very promises that we have made towards him and towards others. In John 3.16, a well-known passage, I'm sure, we see again God initiating a covenant of love, one greater than Jonathan's covenant with David. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The greatest promise of God's hesed, kindness towards us, can be found in this verse alone. The greatest pledge of loyalty from God, the greatest pledge he can give is himself. So when Jesus comes to earth, he embodies all these past covenants that he made to Abraham, to David, to Israel, and all the future promises he makes of his coming kingdom when he restores all things to the way he intended, reigning over a world with no death and no sin and no brokenness and no shame. But this promise isn't just a future hope, as great as it is, it's also for here and now. We get a taste of it. As God promised to build a house for David, we see a new house that God is building here right now. Hebrews 3 tells us that Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to the confidence and hope in which we glory. The question is, what does this house look like? When you walk into a home, what are the first impressions you get of the family? What do they value? How do they behave towards each other? Do you sense love? Do you sense kindness? Do you sense loyalty to one another? A heart of generosity and giving, even when nothing can be returned. As Christians, we are God's covenant people, his house. He makes a covenant with us and promises us love and loyalty. So like David, this ought to spill over into our own day-to-day dealings. We see that God's covenant is marked by a lifestyle of love and loving behavior. He gives us the foundation, the ability, and the incentive to show love to others. This, according to Jesus, is how everyone will know that we are his disciples. In John 13, he tells his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Everyone can experience this in a tangible way. The way we love as God's house is to spill over into how we love our neighbors, into how we love our colleagues or our family members. So similar to David, we can ask, is there anyone to whom I can show God's love? Maybe that colleague who seems anxious about their workload. Maybe the way I respond to that email that's not particularly worded nicely. Maybe that friend whom I haven't spoken to in a while, or the parent with whom I've had a strong disagreement. Maybe, just maybe, even an enemy. 
Some of you may have heard of this uh, gentleman here, Daryl Davis. He's a black blues musician, lecturer, writer, presenter, actor. The point is, he's quite a big deal, but he's also a committed Christian. Born in Chicago and raised in Boston, he grew up curious about the racism and violence that existed around him. As a kid, he himself was a victim of this, being struck with rocks and bottles from racist crowds. What he saw and experienced inspired him to take action in the future, but not the kind of action you would commonly expect. He decided to befriend lots and lots of white supremacists and KKK members. He invites them over to dinner in his house. He talks with them. He even goes over to their homes. And he did this for over three decades. In the documentary, Accidental Courtesy, which chronicles his story, he says this, I never set out to convert anyone in the clan. I just set out to get an answer to my question. How can you hate me when you don't even know me? I simply gave them a chance to get to know me and treat them the way I want to be treated. And after many meals and conversations, as you can imagine, it is estimated that around 200 KKK members left the clan as a result and handed him their robes. He now has a wardrobe collection full of robes and hoods of ex-Klansmen who have handed him their past and have decided on a different future. What an extraordinary story of extraordinary kindness resulting in extraordinary change and loyalty. But the question for us is this, where has God placed you in today? Thankfully, none of us bear the responsibility or pressure of being a king. I mean, look at me, my hair's receding as it is. But God has put each of us with our own unique abilities in our own unique positions. As an employee, maybe as a leader, as a friend, as a son or daughter, brother or sister, father or mother, husband or wife, you name it, you are placed somewhere. What opportunities has he given to you to show his kindness? Do you take the time, like David, to ask for these opportunities and seize them when they arise? Or do we avoid them altogether? It can be costly, and it can require sacrifice. It can require us to be vulnerable and give up control and lay our lives down. What does that look like for you? And I'll finish with this last story that goes back a few thousand years. Uh, so maybe the band would like to come back up. This chap is Caesar Hadrian. Um, obviously, that's a statue of him. Uh, selfies were a bit harder back then. But he was the emperor that commissioned the building of this humongous temple, the Temple of Venus, as you can see picture there next to him, in Rome. He was the one who commissioned this building. And in his time as emperor, he began to be anxious and weirded out by this news of a new rising cult throughout the empire. A cult known as the Way, which now we know to be Christianity. <laughs> he starts getting anxious about its rapid rise. So what does he do? He basically sends a spy to check them out, of course. His name was Aristides, as you can see here. A pagan scholar who worked under the Roman emperor in Athens. Weeks into his mission of infiltrating a church, he writes this massive letter back to the emperor. And I won't read all of it, because trust me, it's long. 
They didn't have 4G back then, so he probably sends this by post, and he essentially says this about the Christians. Their oppressors, they appease and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there is any among them that is poor and needy, and if any have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Every morning and every hour they give thanks and praise to the God, to God for his loving kindness toward them. Such is their manner of life, since they know the loving kindness of God toward them. Behold, for their sake, the glorious things which are in the world flow forth to view. Verily, this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. I don't know about you, but I find this story absolutely astonishing. This isn't a fairy tale. This actually happened. I mean, you can imagine the look on Caesar's face as he's reading this. This is his spy basically writing to him, saying, the God that these Christians worship is amazing. And I can just tell by the, the way that they behave and love one another. Oh, and by the way, I'm also one of them now. hate to break the news. This is tangible and real. It's believable. It's visible. There is a kindness that is not of this world. There is a loyalty that demands my heart and not just my head. There is something divine here, and that is my prayer today, that we get to experience something divine, that we get to experience for ourselves this great covenant love of God. If you are here today and have no idea or clue what this looks like or feels like, could I simply encourage you to come Come like Mephibosheth with all your uncertainties, all your fears, all your doubts, all your sin and all your past. Just bring it before him. Just bring yourself. Come as you are. He's not calling us because we're able to walk the right way or talk the right talk. He calls us precisely because we're not. The best thing is that he wants to show us his covenant love for free this hesed kindness. It's free, it's undeserved, it's liberating. We no longer need to manipulate our lives or the lives of others in order to keep power or control, to build our own flimsy little kingdoms that don't last. We can receive a new kingdom, one ruled by kindness and loyalty and love, one ruled by sacrifice and generosity. And for, the, for those of us who have experienced this, my prayer is this, that we grow in our loyalty to the one who has given his very life on the cross for the sake of this covenant love. And indeed, that we can grow with each other in our love for one another. We love because he first loved us. He's shown us how to love and he calls us to do the same. I pray we can ask ourselves the question more often, to whom can I show God's kindness today? Maybe ask God to show you. Maybe it's already very obvious. 
There will be a prayer team here at the end. And if there is anything you feel God has been speaking to you about during the service, they would love to stand with you in prayer. This is just one way we can experience God's covenant love by bringing ourselves and our requests before him. Or maybe this is just the next step for you in simply coming and experiencing his kindness for yourself. We would love to pray with you as you do. Let me pray and then we will continue in a song of worship or two before we formally end. I wonder if you'd stand with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing act of kindness that you have shown us. The kindness of a saviour who came down to earth to fulfill all the promises that you have spoken to us, Lord. To give his very life for the sake of our sin and our shame, to wash us clean and renew us and restore us. Thank you that we can experience this hesed kindness with you right now. And Holy Spirit, would you empower us and enable us to show the same kindness and love to those around us, especially to those who need to witness this for themselves. God, would you help us and fill us right now, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.